0: Welcome to the 1505 Club. I'm your host, Dr. David Fowler. I've been in clinical practice for almost 20 years. I'm a Gonstead diplomate, and I am the current vice president of the Gonstead Clinical Study Society. It's my intention with this podcast to introduce you to the best chiropractors in the world. These people are my colleagues, my mentors, and my friends. Rarely do I have a conversation with any of these people that I'm not blown away by both their knowledge and their ability. Today's guest is no exception. Dr. Christopher Meyer has been in practice for 21 years. He's a Gonstead diplomate who practices in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Whenever I talk to Chris, I feel like I'm talking to the other half of my brain because he consistently asks me the questions that I forget to ask myself. Today we're going to be talking about some really deep topics. If you're new to chiropractic or new to Gonstead chiropractic, you might feel like this is a bit over your head, but I would encourage you to stick with us and we'll try to keep it as simple as possible. I believe it will open your eyes to some radical new concepts in chiropractic and neurology. So without any further ado, Dr. Christopher Meyer. Dr. Meyer, thank you for joining us today. Well,
1: good morning, David. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I always like to start off with some questions uh, so that the people listening can get to know our guests a little bit better. So to start off with, how did you get into chiropractic, and more specifically, how did you get into Gonstead chiropractic? Uh,
1: I had the chance uh, when I was in college to uh, get here under Dr. Michael LaCourt, who had interned with Dr. Troxell out of Iowa. And uh, when I was in college, I slipped on spicy steps and uh, landed hard on my butt, hurt my neck, and uh, at the insistence of my brother, uh, went to a chiropractor for the first time, and I was the last person in my family to go to one. Uh, my opinion at that point was, what the hell's a chiropractor, and why would I want to go to one? And he was just, just do it. And so I listened, uh, I was rather stubborn, and uh, it wouldn't change my life, actually. So I've had allergies every summer, uh, for a number of years and been on antihistamines, antibiotics constantly. And after getting my neck adjusted, my allergies went away and I had more energy. Uh, didn't get colds five, six times a winter like I had before and just generally felt better than I had in, in many years. Uh, so then I, remember I sat down with Dr. LeCourt one night uh, at the end of his day and I had about 15 questions about chiropractic and he gave me an hour and a half of his time. and answered all my questions and I said, okay, this is what I want to do. So I was uh, looking at going into international business and studying uh, Spanish, looked at maybe living in Spain someday. And I changed everything and this was my fourth of a five-year program in college. So then I went for another year of uh, science and chemistry and all that, the basic sciences. So I was undergrad for six years, then went to Palmer and enrolled in the intern program there as soon as I could and dedicated myself to constant Chiropractic ever since. Uh, there was also a classmate of mine from high school, Dr. Uh, Brian Osterberg, who had graduated a year after me in high school, but had actually gone to Palmer a year ahead of me. So he's uh, a year senior, and he had been part of the intern program as well, and he recruited me into that and uh, the rest is history. So I've uh, been doing Gonset Chiropractic for 21 years now.
0: That's awesome. My, uh, my next question was going to be uh, who were your mentors, but you kind of answered a lot of that. So since you did, I'm kind of curious, since, um, since you had good training right from the beginning and you had good, solid, um, successful doctors all around you and you had the Troxel program, um, what were your first couple of years of practice like? Um, did you feel like you really hit the ground running and, um, and it was pretty straightforward, or was it still a bit of a struggle for you to get started?
1: I think I, uh, the technical skill, I, I knew that backwards and forwards. Uh, what I didn't know was probably the uh, structural part of, of laying out our office, uh, you know, all the, the administrative tasks and such, uh, marketing and, and promotion and, and outreach. And so, of course, you do the various uh, shows and, and talks and, and such, and, you know, back Grew. It took me about three years to get up to it, uh, you know, busy, which I guess is, in some cases, that's what it takes. But, uh, yeah, and so for many years, yeah, busy, you know, uh, had, had a great little practice down on University Avenue. I had two little, how would I have, I had two rooms. One was my x-ray, and one was the room I adjusted patients in, and I had a common area that was the reception. I think we were 650 feet, I think, square feet, just a tiny little place. And then I uh, uh, had to observe for, I think, 15 years, and then opened a place here in Bellevue, uh, I think seven years ago. We've got a couple thousand square feet here now. Two pool adjusting rooms with equipment, and these- chests and idols. Uh, the x-ray room, and Dr. Robert Castile is in practice with me here as well, so he's got his own area. And, yeah, a little rehab. Some work with uh, infrared light therapy. I like that, um, but yeah, the, the main—you know—potatoes.
0: Uh, what we do is is constant adjusting. Yeah, that's interesting. I find that three-year mark seems to be a common theme. It seems like no matter—I don't know—no matter how much training you do and how good you get in certain aspects, there's still like this three-year curve. And students always ask me about that. I'm like, you know, your first milestone is the three-year mark. There's other milestones down the road, like the 10-year mark and things like that, but that three-year mark is when you really start feeling like, okay, maybe maybe I can make this happen.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've heard other people, you know, you can move to another part of the country and,
0: uh, you know, it takes about that long to get yourself established and, and get to know yeah. people. So, yeah, yeah, really even people faster, right. yeah, even people who are established, if they up and move, it's still like about a three-year curve, so... I think that probably is a good benchmark for people to look at. So, today we're going to talk about some stuff that um, I, I think is pretty heavy, heavy stuff, but I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, it was last—I uh, guess it was last April—that you um, first <laughs> you first told me about polyvagal theory, and even at the time, I was like, I don't even know what those words mean. So it was kind of funny when I, I got the book to learn about it, and my wife saw me reading the book. And my wife, who's a pediatric dentist, so a doctor herself, saw the title on the book, and she's like, I don't even know what those words mean. (laughs) So uh, it definitely seems to be pretty deep, the whole idea of polyvagal theory. So can you explain a little bit about what polyvagal theory is and who Dr. Stephen Porges is? Uh, Sure.
1: So I first came across it on a uh, an online forum for a a different technique. And somebody mentioned, have you read uh, the uh, book by Basil Vanderkoe called The Body Keeps the Score? and he is an M.D. out of Boston. He was raised in Europe, um, but had worked with, I think, with Harvard University or other of the universities out there, and he had helped develop the DSM-5, I think it was, diagnosis of um, post-traumatic stress. And in the book, he this is kind of a, a revolutionary book in, in the field of mental health and trauma recovery, and he said that it seems that after 30-40 years of working with talking out therapy for trauma, that it was less effective than many body-based interventions. And he made a, a reference to polyvagal theory in this. And he, his statement was that um, you know massage, acupuncture, directly uh, you know chiropractic, although he didn't mention it by name, um, things like. Shakespeare, where you move the body, you know, where, where you're acting, uh, a whole bunch of different things where the body is the center seem to help people relieve and, and, and experience and get rid of the effects of trauma physiologically much more effective than just sitting on a couch and talking. And he mentioned uh, Porges, and so then I got Porges' book, read that, and the, his concept of polyvagal theory is that when the body is in the, the trauma, an older, more reptilian part of the nervous system takes effect, and it's uh, a last-ditch survival mechanism that seems to mimic a reptilian response to danger, which is freeze, which inactivates the heart or slows the heart dramatically, slows breathing, so you have uh, 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 I can't think of Latin terms, but well, bradycardia and dipsia and, and, and the body just kind of shuts down, and so it's the idea of, I think, of classically where you, you know, somebody would see a, a mouse on the floor, you know, in the, the movies, and shoot, the woman would faint. Um, or, in an animal kingdom, it's it's like with the uh, lion catches the gazelle, it goes limp, and everybody says, oh, it's fainting death, when in fact, it's like, neurologically, it's right next to death. It just basically shuts the organism down, and it seems to be a survival mechanism that if the lion doesn't eat it right away, it'll shake itself off. If the lion isn't paying attention, it'll run off. And in a short period of time, it's Eating again, it like resets its system, and for some reason humans don't seem to reset as fast, and so it's like we linger in this this vagal shutdown state that seems to be an emergency shut off switch. Uh, and he he uh, suggests that it is related back to reptilian uh, development of the uh, autonomic nervous system, and let me think if I remember correctly that he said that the first phylogenetic was like reptilian, lizard-like which there are only, there are a couple there's a tortoise, a sea turtle and there's some kind of a lizard and I can find the names for you uh, shortly, that still have remnants of this and so there is some evidence that this is the case, but um, if, so, so the first, you know, uh, vertebrates had this system that was sort of like a uh, bulldozer where it's either going, or it's at a very slow rate, or it stops. It goes, and, and it stops. And it seems like, like a reptile, reptile these cold-blooded animals, they don't really have to respond quickly, because there wasn't uh, uh, the predators were faster. And then, apparently, what evolved was a, it's called a chromophin cell, which is a cell that has affinity for chromium, that's where it got the name, and it's, uh, able to produce uh, the catecholamines of uh, epinephrine, n- uh, uh, norepinephrine, and adrenaline, and what it does is these, these small packets of cells throughout the, the vertebrate body could produce bursts of, of uh, faster response. So increased metabolic rate, increased heart rate, increased oxygenation demand, uh, and then that coalesced into an adrenal gland, which, you know, mammals have, And then, so you could have animals that were very slow going, and then you could have animals that could turn on the gas, kind of like the the roadrunner, you know, could take off. And that was the next development. And then he posits that the vagal nerve, which had been developed up to that point and was non-myelinated, then developed a branch of it that was myelinated, but that's dedicated to the area of the vagal above the diaphragm. So he talks about the vagal below the diaphragm, and the vagal above the diaphragm having very different neurological effects. That uh, the subdiaphragmatic is non-myelinated and very slow-acting, and the one above is is much more dynamic. And then he posits that this myelinated vagus made a connection with cranial nerve 9 and 11, so rosofringial and accessory, accessory nerve, and as well as influence with cranial nerves 5 and 7. So uh, facial and trigeminal. And then they formed a, a greater evolutionary complexity, which was the mammalian uh, interpersonal relationship that involves facial expression movements. So basically uh, mirror neurons in the face that can sense the emotional state of others and mirror it. So you can feel what other people are feeling by, by just seeing what's on their face. Because you, your face mirrors that, and you feel it yourself. Uh, Facial expression, so you're, the, you know, whatever it is, 20-odd muscles in the face that can produce, like, you know, 8,000 or 20,000 different possible combinations. Um, and that's a signaling aspect that uh, that involves social interaction with others. And then this links in with uh, the vocal apparatus, so the muscles that control the, the throat muscles, the, the vocal cords, so the and the yeah. tongue the movements, and then... Uh, shoulder shrugs as well, so rotating of the head and, and moving, uh, raising the shoulders. And so this all gets bundled together in this complex that he's got this. Again, this is the model that he has for how this is, is laid out. And so it involves uh, the sympathetic nervous system, which is adrenal or, and, and sympathetic chain, and then the dorsal vagal, which slows the heart, uh, s- uh, stops the gut, uh, basically uh, diminishes metabolic uh, demand on the body, slows on breathing, and then the ventral angle, which is engagement, which would be like if you're uh, you know, sitting with friends and talking and gesturing and, and your face is lively and, and your eyes are lively and so forth, that that's a like the third tier on this ladder of developmental uh, biology. And, the neat thing about that is that it allows us some interesting ways of looking at a person. Okay, it's like, okay, is this a, uh, you know, previously we had it was, is it sympathetic or parasympathetic, uh, gas or break? This gives us uh, like five different levels where you can have um, sympathetic by itself. You can have uh, sympathetic and, and dorsal vagal. You can have sympathetic and vagal. Or, or, or uh, ventral vagal, and then you can have either purely dorsal or, or I believe, purely uh, ventral vagal as well. So there's like five different autonomic states uh, possible, instead of just
0: the two you know, gas or For me, that was that was one of the big paradigm busters. For me, was we always think of nerves as either being on or off. So to find out that there's these two portions, and that the on portion could be pedal to the metal, while the off portion is going on and off and on and off and on and off and functioning in a totally different rhythm while the other part is still working. Like That whole concept is like, we don't think of it like that. We think that it's either 100% like a light switch. It's on or it's off. And this clearly shows that the vagus does not work that way.
1: Yeah, he talks about co-activation or, or mono-activation and varying degrees of that. Um, and so, yeah, one of the questions I have is, you know, why can the animal come out of that dorsal state Engage the ventral and we don't seem to be able to as well in some cases. And again, that might be You know, be it it subluxation, be it other factors that diminish
0: that adaptability. Yeah, actually, I think that's probably a good transition here because Scientists come up with data and they've done a great job of coming up with tons and tons and tons of data but I found myself as I was reading through a book, thinking, "Yeah, but how do I apply this? How do I apply? <laughs> how do I apply any of this? Um, yeah, like, good what good does good it good. really mean?"
1: Um, um, Porges is he's a, a psychologist, but has a background in psycho-physi- uh, psycho, yeah, psychophysiology research. And when we attended Dr. Bersten's uh, seminar two years ago in June, about uh, Ohio State, he mentioned that yeah, Porges has some different mathematical analyses and algorithms that they use to to evaluate uh, autonomic states and I I, I literally asked him about polyvagal theory he said he's he's I don't know what he what he has he said but he didn't he said don't call it polyvagal and so there seems to be some some dispute within the, the field of is there enough evidence scientifically to, to support this? You know, there's, there's the two different nuclei of origin in the brainstem, uh, the dorsal motor nucleus, nucleus of angulus, and, oh shoot, I forgot the other one. Uh, it's coming to me. But so there's there's two different output legs and one sensory input leg for the bagel. Um, and so it, it anatomically can activate these two different systems at different times. It's able to do that. It's like having a Christmas tree where different strings of lights can be activated at different times. It makes makes sense. Uh, I think it's probably more subtle than that, even. Uh, But the evidence still seems to be lacking for some of the hardcore scientists to support this fully. But if you go into the field of mental health, the counselors and psychologists have seen this type of effect for, for you know, decades, and they didn't, weren't able to make sense of it clinically based on the old model of gas or brake. But this one seems to give them a better model of what's going on. So, the mental health field, people who work with patients have latched onto this theory to a great degree, and, and I think they've given gorgeous some you know, some celebrity in the, in the field of research that maybe some of the researchers don't get, and maybe there's some jealousy there, who knows. But it's just this the sense that it seems to make sense clinically more than it makes sense neuroanatomically. So it's, no. in a lot of cases, even when we look at Dr. Goss said, you know, you have observed things in practice that you didn't necessarily understand anatomically, but we're starting to understand now. So hopefully it's, it's something like that. So.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess to take it back to kind of how you introduced me into this, Here's a scenario, and we'll see what you think of this, but my scenario was, um, I guess you have the background of it, we were talking about a muscle that has to do, that's involved in sleep apnea. And so you'd ask me the innervation, and I just assumed that it was a branch of the, of the trigeminal nerve because most of the muscles in the face are, part, are branches off the trigeminal. So I looked it up, and it turned out to actually be the vagus nerve, which was kind of odd. So then the theory comes up, well, if the vagus and this polyvagal theory is affecting this muscle that when it loses tension or tone, basically, can block the airway and lead to sleep apnea, would it be possible then or um, would it be a hypothetical that people who suffer with PTSD might be more prone to sleep apnea? Because that would be an interesting finding. And is that kind of the idea of where this can become clinically relevant, that we find connections with things that we might not normally connect together?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I'm thinking, you know, some of the recurrent laryngeal nerve uh, work into the muscles of the upper airway. Uh, there's a book I'm reading right now where we're getting into that. Um, so one of, the, one of the tests that I came across in, my, in some of the seminars I've taken on this is you look at the uvula uh, in the back of the throat and the palatine arches, and you have the person say, ah, you will know, drop their tongue down so it's flat, uh, so you can see the airway, and there should be symmetry in that musculature. Mm-hmm. And so it's the arches tell you one thing, and the, and the actual ovula itself, uh, it's actually like a, like a weather vane or a windsock at an airport. It'll deviate to one side or the other, uh, and I'm using that as a tool to assess are we getting... It's seeing different subtle physiological indicators of an asymmet- asymmetrical functional output of glossopharyngeal nerve, vagal nerve, and spinal accessory nerve. And you'll also look at the tone, tension of tone and range of motion involving the neck rotation, uh, SCM muscles, trapezius muscles. And these all seem to kind of come together. And I, that idea of a, uh, a paralysis of muscles where the person, you know, the animal or person just goes limp, they pass out. Uh, I think that happens with the, the throat muscles. But then the other question is, does the person with PTSD, was it the PTSD that gave them that problem, or was the nervous system in a weakened state to begin with, and then they ended up with trauma, and that pushed them over the edge. Because something work with, with HRV, and PTSD seems to be able to predict ahead of time or somebody goes overseas for military service, where they'll be susceptible to PTSD. And people with a, with a lower level of heart rate variability or a lower level of vagal um, regulation of the heart seem to be more susceptible to PTSD. Apparently, even if they don't go overseas, even if they're uh, in a training accident, you know, a base and they're from overseas, they can still suffer from PTSD to a greater extent than somebody that's got a more dynamic functional nervous system.
0: Yeah, actually, that's a good place for us to cross over to talk about a little bit with um, heart rate variability because it's a, a good way for measuring. Is there an over, is there an overlap between HRV and polyvagal theory? Are these two things kind of working together? One is a measure for detecting the function of the other.
1: So, so HRV started at least what I've seen. It's about forty some years, 40, 45 years, and it was more of a an analysis tool for measuring that um, the motor lag of the vagal response to the heart, and then they started. They, it was it was something that they could test with uh, EKG, so it became a, a, a biometric of the, of the body that they could measure. And then they started over time to realize, that, okay, this is associated with uh, with emotional states, uh, with with. Uh, uh, pers- if you're lying, you know, so, so basically detection and deception. Uh, Department of Defense has a lot of interest in that. Uh, they could also find out that the more uh, adaptive and responsive the heart was, the more adaptive and responsive the other organs were. And so these people tended to have better uh, recovery from injury or illness, uh, did get get you know, ill as quickly. And so then uh, I know the American Space Program used HRV. Uh, the Russian-stage program uses as well, and one of the devices I used came out of Russia originally. The uh, wave HRV is the first user I came across about 12 years ago, uh, Alexander Rivkin out of uh, Russia, lives in New York now, developed about that. and let's see, they, apparently NASA would use HRV to screen uh, astronauts to see if they have a the likelihood of falling ill in the next, you know, couple weeks while they're going to be in space. And if you had you know three candidates with you know equal credentials, whoever had the highest HRV values would be the one that got most to fly because the odds were that they were of the three least likely to get sick because their nervous system and, and organs were the most adaptive. Uh, so there's that. I'm trying to think uh let's see. Where were we here? HRV history, yeah. So the the link between the brainstem, the uh, areas of emotional management, and social dynamics seems to fit right in with this idea of, of polyvagal, uh, but it's, it's hard to find anybody that's combined HRV and polyvagal theory together fully. Uh, where, where Ford just first came across, the idea of this was he was giving a presentation at a pediatrics conference, and in his experience... No, you know, it seen was, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a pediatrician, but a pediatrician came to him afterwards, and uh, his assertion in the conference where he, where he presented was that greater vagal tone is always good. And the pediatrician who worked with neonates came in and he said, no, if, if we have the you know, heart monitor on and, and the HRV levels get too high, uh, what will happen is it will slow their heart down, it will slow their breathing. And these, you know, infants that are, that are premature will nearly die. And so we came up with the idea that in a neonate, the last part of the vagal nervous system to develop is the, you know, the myelinated part. And so the unmyelinated dominates when you're, if you're born at, you know, 12 weeks premature. And if they try and feed these infants with a, a, a tube or, you know, tr- you know, try and put a, a needle in them or, or, or anything a line to, you know, hydrate them, that, that stress activated that ancient uh, defense mechanism and it slowed their heart breathing down to where they would nearly die. And so in his case, too much bagel was bad. And again, we would you know, argue and guess a little bit. Everything has to be in a balance. You can't just have you know, bagel tone on its own for no reason, you know, no, no context. So what he then did is he you know, had this, uh, this paper, this response that this doctor had given him, And he said, he he went around for a number of years with this in his briefcase, trying to get to the bottom of it. He's like, this doesn't make any sense in what we think we understand about how the nervous system develops, you know, sympathetic and parasympathetic being just, you know, two different things. And then he finally came up with this idea that what if the the vagal has two parts, one that's myelinated, that's early developing, and then, or sorry, unmyelinated, early developing, and then uh, myelinated, that develops last. And it seems then that anything that damages that and so, uh, you know, demyelinating disease or anything that injures nerves tends to lower HRV. And so that's the concept of, you know, what, what does chronic inflammation or autoimmune, where the, the megal, the megal uh, uh, schwann cell is being damaged, does that uh, reduce HRV? And that does seem to all be connected. So.
0: Yeah, and we were talking earlier about the, the diaphragm, and so then the diaphragm, attaches to the spine, which holds the nervous system. The diaphragm influences obviously breathing, which breathing influences the heart. The diaphragm is innervated by the vagus nerve. So you have like this full circle thing where all of these things are interdependent on each other. And so a a break in the link is potentially gonna affect all of these things, which could make a very um, complicated clinical picture if they all started breaking down simultaneously to try to figure out where the, where the break actually is. Um, but I know you've been looking at the diaphragm as well, and I'm sure this is why. Uh, how does that play into this picture of, of the vagus and the polyvagal and the heart rate variability?
1: Well, it's, it, that's a big, big big I right now. That's, I mean, if you look at uh, any of the popular HRV, we're going to run it to look up HRV or, or, or any the Facebook pages uh they'll talk about meditative practices you know and if you look at meditative practices you know the core of that is is well it's breathing is essential to it if anything it's interoceptive awareness which is what the vagal i was amazed in, in my studies here the last two years uh that the vagus vagal nerve is 80 to 90 percent uh sensory you know i thought it was 50 50 when i went to school uh, but it's it's not a motor nerve at all it's a sensory nerve so it provides feedback to the brain of what's going on inside of your spleen and you know your liver your digestive system um, but also you know your, your breathing and so I think that any meditative practice where you have to control the breathing again that nafarfar pathway uh, the safety pin cycle of, of practice in a sense um breathing seems to correlate with this and then you get into some of the other interesting stuff with, with diaphragm related to emotional expression and um, yeah yes yeah. so there's and, and even if it's um, dysfunctional or atrophied or a person has a chest breather versus a, a belly breather that'll have different effects and then you get into capnometry and you know uh, co2 levels and basal and, and, uh, spasm you know, and then work that that has on, on other areas of the body. Oh, uh, Yeah, it's, it's it's hard to know where one system ends and the other one begins. But, yeah, my latest research is into the, the structural aspects of the breathing process, you know, the rib cage, the diaphragm, the lumbar spine, and the muscles that are attached to that and how that all interacts as a whole. Um, and, again, related back to, to HRV, I've been monitoring mine now for, 344 days as of today, uh, do measure every morning and just try to, to tease out from this data, you know, what is it that that keeps my nervous system in top form, you know. And, yeah, you know, a certain amount of that is a certain amount of challenge. It has to, you know, the diaphragm muscle has to be has to be worked, has to be, you know, in a synthetic-driven state, but then I think it needs time to be in a parasympathically-driven state. And how does a person find the right balance of all that? That's yeah, there's there's some interesting questions out here. But yeah, polyvagal feeds into HRV because literally HRV is what you know uh, allowed him to assess the, the, the situation with the heart and the lungs. Um, and then you know got feedback from other practitioners and said, okay, this our model is incomplete, and now we've got an operating model that makes a little bit more sense. You know, for all we know, the, the sympathetic nervous system may have a poly. You know, component to it. Who knows? You mm-hmm. know, and then the the idea that the sacral autonomic's are uh, purely sympathetic. It came out of an article in Nature, I think, three four years ago. You know, how do we integrate that? You know, and then you know that you can adjust a a sacral segment and have an effect on the heart rate. Which how is that possible if it's not a vagal connected? You know, but it has to pass through the spinal cord. So apparently, you adjust the sacrum. It has an effect up through the cord, not independent of the vagal nerve, uh, as an effect on the brain, which then goes back down the vagal nerve and affects the heart. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was interesting. I was uh, sitting with Dr. Burdenson after uh, a seminar a couple years ago and having a, a drink at the bar, and I just asked him, "Okay, you know, in your, in your talk, you talked about the the <laughs> leg and the afferent leg. You know, and on the model, it showed this little short little neuron. And they call it an interneuron." That that determines what's going to happen between the sensory and the and the motor output. And I said, what is that? And he said, basically, it's everything that's ever happened to you. It's it's your entire entire uh, you know, central nervous system and your expression of um, or your your reaction to an event is going to be different from somebody else's based on your life experience. So. You know, if you take one person and you put some sticks on their feet and you push them down the side of a mountain, you know, you, you think you're trying to kill them. And another person that's, you know, uh, a skier, well, that's not even a bad enough run. You know, I want a, a steeper run. You know, you know, two people, uh, a, a, a you know, lightning bolt strikes, one person's going to grab their, you know, camera and run, you know, into the pickup and go chase a tornado, and the other person's heading for the basement, you know. And so that's, you know, why does one person react differently than the other? Is it genetic? Is it endocrine? Is it developmental? You know, I, don't know. I don't know. But you know, we're starting to see that there are certain systems within the nervous system that seem to get locked into a loop. And that, I would see is that, that dorsal vagal state where you end up with uh, uh, a diminished heart rate, uh, diminished uh, uh, breathing, uh, just diminished reset reactivity. Like, you look at the person's face and it's less, it's more dull. You know, that gets into that idea of, and I think maybe that's what the counselors saw psychologists, that it was, you know, you, you've tried to interact with this person and they were just kind of, you know, half awake, you know, just just kind of on autopilot. Uh, one of the seminars I was at, Dr. Dr. Uh, Stanley Rosenberg who's a body worker. Uh, I think he he may have been osteopathically trained in Europe as well, I'm trying to think of his background, but he mentioned uh, about the, the facial expression, the movement, and he said it in his book, that at one time he was working with uh, a client doing doing massaging body work, with then I think it was Rolfing as well. And the guy got done with one hour-long massage, and it was so relaxed, quote-unquote, that he couldn't get off the table. And so he looked at the guy lay there for another half hour, until so like his client was coming, and he had you know, kind a, of Relaxed the guy, and in, and the fellow you know, drove home. He said, I had to stop three times on the way home you know, because I was so tired. And he said, looking at it now, he said, it's it's not that I relaxed the guy. He said, what I did is I engaged his dorsal vagal nervous system to where it shut down on him, and it took everything he had adrenaline-wise to, to just you know, put one foot of another. And before before body bagel theory, he said, this didn't make any sense. He said, afterwards, it's like, okay, what I did is I, I needed to to not stimulate that part of the, of the nervous system, I needed to work on balancing of them out. You know, that's what he's teaching now, is, is a way of doing that with just you know, with body work methods. Um, but yeah, that you can have a person be tubalized. So that's, you can have too much the of the angle. And this fits into this, the concept of the ACEs study, which is the adverse childhood experiences, or ACE. And I came across that, let's see, back in March of last year. Well, a lecture this year at uh, the University of Wisconsin had a, a lecture that they broadcast on television. It was a, a, a pediatric developmental specialist out of the UW. And they talked about that there are 10 bad things that can happen to, to children between, oh, between the ages of birth and age 18. And it was like you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, neglect. Uh, mother treated violently, you know, household member uh, in jail, you know, a bunch of things. And the more of these that people had, the more negative health outcomes they had. And so polyvagal theory might make an explanation of this, that if that dorsal vagal system gets triggered and and becomes more easily uh, reactivated, it's kind of like a stream, you know, digging up path in the earth and then the more the water falls the more it's you know that path gets gets stuck in that these people had more digestive problems more immune problems more cancer more heart disease uh, more suicide attempts and if a person had six i think it was six or more adverse childhood experiences that their risk of dying let's see it, it literally knocked 20 years off their lifespan so these people, most people die in their 70s, late 70s. These people die on average in their mid 50s of heart attacks. And so it's this idea that that past trauma seems to engage a defensive reaction, and this defensive reaction integrates the nervous system in a negative response loop, and that seems to create. I, I suspect now. Uh, so this, if sort of I have of a chronic inflammatory state in the body and the disengagement of the immune system in uh, in effects that deal with long-term uh, repair so these are people that have more autoimmune because the immune cells change their ratio of you know T cells go more into bacteria because if there's a perceived threat the uh, the body shifts resources into dealing with what is likely to happen, which if if there's a a physical threat, your skin is likely to be torn. Uh, Microorganisms are likely to get in there, and our ancestors that developed this response tended to survive. Nowadays, we don't have that uh, physical threat, but we have a low-grade stress that if in these cases, these people perhaps have an accentuated response, then the immune system tips into inflammatory, which, again, the bradykinins and cytokines and so forth, produce this inflamed membrane as part of the immune response and not just the antibody-antigen response. So there's the, the humoral and then there's the innate. So the innate becomes a small fire of inflammation, and that seems to also inhibit the, uh, the viral defenses. And so these are the people that, when they're constantly stressed, constantly stressed, that you know they're, they're, they may be fine with bacteria, but they end up with autoimmune and, and viral infections. And it, it stands to reason that if the mind and brain and nervous system had been traumatized in a certain way, that you get locked into that uh, dorsal vagal effect, and it has an effect on the immune response, and so repair, and these people die at a, at a faster age. So uh, I've seen some of this.
0: That's, that's I, I was trying to, in my head, I'm trying to think about all the things we've talked about and trying to come up with like a cliff note version. And it seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, that basically what we're talking about is that physical dysfunction has an emotional component. Um, that emotional component is probably, well, I guess how you respond to stress. Well, I guess, okay. So it's, a, it's like an adaptability thing, and people are either well adapted or maladaptive. And how you adapt might be as important to your health as even your diet and your level of activity. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would I would say there's evidence that that's a primary. Yeah, you know, that your you look at some of the work with uh, uh, placebo studies, and that there are placebo responders and, and non-responders, and there seems to be a genetic and, and endocrine pattern that, that some people have that they respond better to human kindness and, you know, other ones don't seem to have that effect. And so a lot of therapeutic interventions may have this, you know, uh, involved as well. And so, but yeah, the question is, you know, why does one person react uh, to a situation with threat? And then if that threat's threshold is high enough does it then leave a you know a scar in a sense in the neural neural memory you know is that is that all based back on subluxation you know is this person that okay you you injured your head or your neck and and affected your vagal nerve when you were young and then you're more sensitive more susceptible to this so maybe that you know adjusting when you're when you're young is more powerful than we thought because it may prevent you know some of this neural fragility or you know lack of of Ability to, to you know, shake it off. You know, some people, you know, bad things happen to them, and they can, you know, just just take it in stride. And other people can't. You know, and, and again, the, the mental health field is looking at it. You know, from okay, how do we counsel this person? You know, and, and even us, we're trying to fix broken people. You know, it's not just in the in the spine. It's in, you know, the it's in the immune system. It's in, you know, other areas. You know, how do we take this all into account? So I don't know. It's it's. Yeah, it's, it's
0: a tough nut to crack. But hopefully well, we get you know, uh, a better model. What's up? Yeah, well, there's the response that we often get, like, um, and it's usually like an upper cervical adjustment where you adjust the patient, and then they'll start crying, and as they're crying, they'll tell you, I don't even know why I'm crying. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that response doesn't make a lot of sense, except with polyvagal theory, now it suddenly does. Yeah. You know, if, if, you, if you bring the body back,
1: It's interesting, there's a whole uh, a course you can take in New York on um, using breathing patterns to establish emotion. It's called Albert Body. it's a neuroscientist out of Chile, who uh, wrote a book, well, she, she talks about when she was, you know, getting into college, she could have gone into acting or into neuroscience, and she chose neuroscience because all of her friends who went into acting had really messed up personal lives and <laughs> she said okay I, there's something that's happening these people i don't you know, know what it is i don't want to you know to risk it and so she went the, the conservative route and then when she retired she got back into acting and she said oh, okay now i understand what's going on is that some people can get into a role uh, i think it's uh i can't think of that role. uh a polish a method acting or something who developed method acting which is bring up on uh, tears you think about your dog getting run over or your grandmother dying or you know, something really bad and to elicit a, a, a physiological response to your body for your art you traumatize yourself over and over and that may explain why like heath ledger you know got into the role of the joker so well that he couldn't get back out of it and started you know, taking you know, you know, drugs to try to sleep and overdosed on it why you know this to him And so she uses breathing patterns, and she said there's six different types of breathing where you engage the diaphragm consciously with your mind, kind of like meditative practice. And in doing so, within a minute, you will feel that emotion in your body. And so actors use this to quickly switch in and out of emotional states. And, you know, the first thing she teaches the person is how to get out of it. You know, there's a a breathing pattern to get yourself out once you're you're in it. but this idea that, okay, respiration and, you know, the, the diaphragm and the inputs to that through the vagal and the phrenic nerve, and, you know, as how a person is breathing affecting, again, we you know, their, their, their biochemistry, their, their, their you know, CO2 oxygen levels, but, you know, what else is that affecting? You know, and you know, the work that we do when, we, when we're when we adjusting the rib cage, and the thoracics, you know, do we really appreciate the subtlety of what's going on there? You know, if they can't inflate their... Know, one side of the thorax, because you know, T7 is rotated and you know, transverse is shifting a rib, and so forth. You know, to what effect is an adjustment having? You know, broader effects. I, I don't know. This is, you know, and, and then the concept of the sympathetic chain. You know, and, and one effect another along the rib heads. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the respiratory system that's more and more intriguing as I as I go along you look into martial arts, you know, very, very much about breath control. You know, there's a Russian martial art called Sistema where, you know, breathing is, is the core of it. You start with that, and everything else follows once you've trained your breathing.
0: I was, I was just looking at my notes, and there's something in here that I'm very curious about. Uh, I know nothing about it, so I hope I'm not putting you too much on the spot, but it's the, uh, the vagal splenic anti-inflammatory pathway. Um, And the fact that now, in addition to all these things you already talked about, now you can bring the spleen into it, which is one of those organs a lot of people don't know much about. But I think the anti-inflammatory part is something that everybody's on a big kick about because not that necessarily being anti-inflammatory is in itself the greatest thing ever since we need inflammation. But most people are so maladaptive that they're stuck in a state of chronic inflammation that that's why anti-inflammatory has become such a a big thing. But what role does the vagus and the spleen play in this whole anti-inflammatory thing?
1: So there's a paper that I read last
0: summer sometime. Uh, I can send it to you. And it
1: took me a better part of a weekend to read through this thing. (laughs) And it goes through the the splenic anti-inflammatory pathway is where the vagal nerve carries out through... It doesn't have direct innervation to the spleen, and so it has to work through the sympathetic chain and then back into the spleen to have... The, the neurotransmitters released that signal the spleen to reduce inflammation, and so the the vagal nervous system has the ability to to inhibit inflammation throughout the body, um, and I suspect to retrain the immune cells as well because that's where they, they have residence is in the, in the spleen. But there's actually this this pathway has been observed medically and so the field of electro uh, electro pharmacology is being developed and you'll they want to put electric uh, pads on either your ears or on your neck or actually put a, a, a electrode on the vagal nerve itself to stimulate it to uh, release this anti-inflammatory compound or, or effect Neurology on the body, and so it would be a non-pharmacological anti-inflammatory, and it would basically be hijacking this this vagal pathway. So rather interesting. uh, I had a patient who came in here this week who had what did she call it? It was uh, it's a vagal there's a vagal stimulator. one that she'd be using for a month, and she could sleep at night, and she wasn't as angry at people. Yes, was a short-tempered, and we're seeing other positive effects. I'm like, this is interesting. I, I know Bruce had alluded to this at one of the seminars that I think the Golden uh, State uh, Warriors had used a device uh, called a Halo. Halo, is I think it is. It's a it's a brain stimulating device, it sends a low-level of current through of the through the brain in a way that uh, enhances neuroplasticity, so the ability to um, learn free throws faster, and better, and more consistently. So mm. there's there's some interesting, you know, future fields. And again, there's you know, a branch of medicine that's going you know full bore into this, you know, trying to stimulate the, the vagal nerve and the nervous system in specific ways. It's like, you know, we uh, We've been doing this for a for a century so you know how could we be more precise and more exact and more analytic in our in our approach and you know measure it before and measure it after so that's you know my hope with hrv is to use it more with my patients to observe what effect does the adjustment have and how can we fine-tune that in a way that that brings these people back into more adaptive you know dynamic states
0: I can, yeah, and, I can find that paper and, and send it to you, you know, if you want to yeah that kind of brings me to a good like summary of all of this because we've talked about a lot of detailed things in a lot of different areas even though they are interconnected so on a practical level when you're seeing patients how are you I, people may not know that you have a thing for measuring HRV on your patients but how are you, how are you taking um, the information you're getting what other methods of of bio information are you getting, and how are you using this to actually try to accentuate the adjustment and help your patients, and what kind of results are you seeing from that?
1: So, yeah, I've been using the uh, IntelliWave out of uh, New York. Uh, it's uh, Alexander Rifkin's device. I've had that for, I think, 12 years. And I, it takes about five minutes to run a test with that, so what I'll do is it's part of my initial exam and then it re-exams. And we'll try and, you know, get it as, as consistent as we can. A person shouldn't eat for two hours before, uh, you kind of get a history of what drugs they're taking and so forth. That may have an influence on this. And the first one is the baseline, see so where they're at. It gives a bunch of different metrics of, of sympathetic versus parasympathetic level, you know, heart rate, and, and a bunch of other mathematical analyses of it. And then I'll do it at, at re-exams. Occasionally I'll do it uh, pre and post adjustment if I find it particularly upper cervical. I've had some other, some really neat cases where um, like concussion, you know, the person, we haven't, you know, stand, in their balance is lousy, we haven't tried you know do math in their head or, you know, up with as many words that start with the letter F in a minute. You know, this one uh, team, she could do, you know, she gave her like two words and couldn't do math or anything and found a, a nasty C1, so uh, adjusted that and I did the HRV pre-imposed on her, it was night and day difference. So you could see when there was an acute injury affecting the vagal output, and, and, and I think the brain and brain stem as well, uh, it, it showed itself, night and day difference in the HRV before and after, so. So that's exciting. What's more difficult I think is some of the, the older folks, when you come in and, and the, the HRV score should look like a picket fence, the, the heart, what you're doing is you're measuring the interval between heartbeats and that's set by the vagal nerve so the, the heart by itself would beat about 105 beats a minute given its you know its, its own internal conduction system and the only reason it doesn't do that is the vagal nerve is always acting as a break and so this is you know a healthy vagal break uh, versus unhealthy you know, uh, of vagal but so that that heart dynamic should be happening in everybody and you get some of the older folks in here and you look at their their Readout, and it should look like a fence up and down, up and up, and they're just flat. And so, to me, right now, the challenge is to figure out how do we bring back, you know, that dynamic pattern that the the the, the conductor and the brainstem should be sending the signal to the heart, and the heart should send it back up. And some part of that loop is is damaged. And so, uh, in the last week or so, I've started using Dr. Perry Chin's that, that I heart pulse wave velocity measurement. Mm-hmm. looking at, at perhaps, you know, an inflammatory state in the body is at play here. Uh, a lot of these people have metabolic syndrome, you know, their, their dyslipidemia, their blood pressure's high, they've got, you know, 40, 50 pounds more than they should. And say, like, okay, is this a more of a metabolic issue that you've to try and fix that? You know, if they're willing, I don't know. then you get into, okay, what what realm does the sympathetic have? You know, some would argue that uh, if you don't engage the sympathetic, you know, to a a high degree periodically, that it gets kind of, it kind of tricks the mind into seeing, perceiving threats when its heart rate is elevated just a little bit, then they go into that kind of, you know, dorsal vagal state. And if the person does exercise where you really get the, the sympathetic, you get the heart rate up, in a controlled fashion, when they realize, okay, I can have my heart racing and it's not a fearful situation, I'm in control of it. Does that, in a sense, reset the system, and then they're not as easily uh, agitated by little things? And you know, that's another thing I'm kind of playing with right now is that maybe one of the benefits of exercise, you know, above and beyond you know all the others, is is you know firing up the sympathetic, you know, in a controlled fashion, and then show it back on again. Yeah, uh, I know, there's a lot going on here
0: so any other comments or um no actually that's a good summary um before we go i actually i appreciate you talking about all this stuff because it's really deep complicated stuff and it's good to give it this kind of time uh, sometimes i'd like to talk to my patients about it but i don't have an hour to talk to them about these things in this depth. So it's nice to have this as a, as a way for people to listen to it, both students and patients as well. Um, Before we go, I do like to ask um, a speed round of questions just so people can get to kind of know you a little bit better. Um, So if you don't mind, we'll go real fast. Um, What's one book that you read that changed your life?
1: Hmm.
0: I know you read a lot, like I do, and actually my secret reason for asking this is this is how I find out about new books that I don't know about so I can read them.
1: <laughs> oh, man, I would say I read Frank Herbert's Dune when I was 13, and that kind of changed my life. <laughs> that,
0: so, you know, that's a good
1: stuff, one. There's like, stuff going on behind the scenes, and, and a lot a lot of things that exist is to manipulate people and control them <laughs> in ways they don't even realize <laughs> it's being done. It's, that's maybe. <laughs>
0: I like that one. (laughs) What's uh, what's the name of a song or an artist that that you like that nobody would ever guess that you like?
1: Oh, Chad Shabilsky. You probably couldn't even pronounce his name if you saw it, but he's uh, a polka musician, and he's playing playing at our our wedding. He's going to be playing at my 50th uh, birthday party here coming up in January, and uh, I love polka music, and I can get out there and, and give it. I, I wore my heart rate monitor uh, uh, while doing that and take some really great data because you can get your heart rate up to 185 beats a minute, don't worry. But, uh, <laughs> that's, that's something else I didn't, I didn't mention earlier on is the, the uh, tool that I use to to uh, measure myself. Uh, I use the HRV in the office, but I also use lead HRV uh, daily uh, on myself, and I'm generally wearing a belt at any given time and taking data. And
0: just say, okay, what improves my adaptability and what reduces it? So. Hmm. Cool. So okay. um, generally speaking, are you an early bird or a night owl?
1: Before I got married, I was a night owl. Now that I'm married, I've become more of an early bird. <laughs> my <laughs> wife's an early bird.
0: <laughs> Usually one wins out over the other, yeah. <laughs> um, what is? What's your favorite movie of all time?
1: I think what comes to mind is, what about Bob?
0: That's uh, <laughs> my wife's, too. That's great. <laughs> it's,
1: it's, uh, you got to laugh once in a while,
0: yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, the most Gonstead question of all, what kind of scope do you use? <laughs> uh,
1: I, I have, uh, I think, four Delta Ts. And, okay. Uh, uh, two of which are working fine, and the other ones i got to repair. so.
0: <laughs> it's cool I, ju- I just got a delta t and started using it i, I love it that's great yeah that's that's what i've used
1: for, for 40 years I, I love them too, so.
0: well awesome well thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it oh
1: thank you and if i can be of any help you know let me know uh people can contact me and uh, if you think we need to do a, a, a primer or a, or a basic intro to this uh sometime we can do that too i may have going
0: more into the really advanced stuff and not doing the real basics of, of HRD. All right.
1: That sounds great. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you,
0: David. <laughs> I'd like to thank Dr. Meyer for joining me today. I hope today's conversation helped you to have a bigger vision of what chiropractic is and what it should be. If you'd like to know more from Dr. Meyer, you can reach him at Cairo. that's c-j-m-c-h-i-r-o at aol.com, or you can reach me at the 1505 club, the one five zero five 5 0 5 club at gmail.com. If you're a chiropractic student, I'd like to encourage you to come to the Gonstead Extravaganza in Mount Horror, Wisconsin, April 25th and 26th. I'll be there, as well as all of the guests that you're going to hear on this podcast, it's your best opportunity to learn what Gonstead Chiropractic really is and to speak personally with Gonstead doctors who have had long and illustrious careers in this profession because of Gonstead. To learn more or to register, you can go to www.Gonstead, Thank you for joining me in this conversation today, and I look forward to meeting with you again next week. Have a great week. See you next time.